Welcome to CF Speaks. In this episode, we will begin our multi-part series on idioma oluos, so you want to talk about race. This is a 2018 uh, nonfiction book about race relations in America. In it, Oluo outlines her opinions on the topics as well as advice about how to talk about the issues. Um, the book received renewed interest following the May 2020 killing of George Floyd, after which the book re-entered the New York Times bestseller list. Okay, welcome back to CF Speaks. Um, we are continuing our in-depth reading of um, So You Want to Talk About Race um, by Ijeoma Oluo. <laughs> I practice saying that like 40 times. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm really excited to be joined by um, Dr. Mary Ann Begley. Um, she obtained her doctorate from Bowling Green State um, in Ohio in higher education administration. Um, she is the current new fresh, fresh-faced director of diversity and inclusion at the College of Central Florida um, and in her spare time watches Korean dramas. Hello, Marianne. Hi, thank you for having me here today. Of course. And hello uh, to our student representative, um, Rebecca McCoy. Um, she is uh, a digital media focused uh, AA student at the college, um, interested in a career in illustration and concept art for video games. Um, maybe anime concept art? Maybe? We don't know. We'll figure it's it It's kind of fluid right yeah. now. I'm just throwing a bunch of things out there and one will stick. One day. <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope. Um, and uh, Rebecca says that she is interested in surrealism, which is great. Yes. We have the Dali Museum in Florida. Oh, I've been like three times already. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and girly animes, which is yeah. great. I'm just going to check out some girly animes after we record. Oh, yeah, just a bunch of pink, rainbows, glitter, and happiness. I mean, that's really what I need in 2020. <laughs> so It's over. Well, but, but it's still here. 2020 is still here. <laughs> it's just, I think the 20s period, just until it stops. I'm just going to keep saying it's 2020. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's, um, let's dive in. Um, the first chapter that we're talking about is, why am I always being told to check my privilege so what did y'all think about this chapter it's a very important chapter it's you know i think something that a lot of people get a little defensive about and you know in the past you know i might have also been defensive about it i mean i gotta acknowledge here that i am white i have a lot of privilege 
like privilege up to the walls. <laughs> and, you know, nowadays I've learned, grown, like everyone does and learned more about what that might mean in relation to me. But I, I do think that is very important because a lot of people don't seem to exactly know what people are getting at when they're telling them to check their privilege and what that means and the context they're trying to convey to them. Yeah, Rebecca, I agree with you. I think this is one of the most important chapters in the book because um, checking our privilege and, and I, I acknowledge too that I am also a white person. And um, so this is work that I've had to do on myself for numerous years now to understand a little bit more about what some of my privileges are and how that actually impacts the work that I do and the people I work with. Um, and in thinking about that privilege, trying to figure out how to use those privileges for um, to make change, um, to make people's worlds better instead of, you know, using that privilege as, as, a, as a tool of oppression, I guess is the best way to put it. And, um, and that's hard. That, that takes a lot of self-reflection. So, and I thought this chapter was just beautifully written by her, by Aluo. Um, she actually defined privilege in the social justice context as an advantage or a set of advantages that you have that others do not. And so I think one of the reasons why people get so defensive about it is because they start thinking about the privileges they don't have rather than the privileges that they do have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of times, too, like um, it seems to be even simplified to, oh, you're calling me a bad person. I'm not a bad person. I have so many black friends. And it's like, oh, oh, God, OK, you need to calm down and uh check your privilege lol like that is not not what we're trying to say here (laughs) yeah i think yeah most definitely i i think the interesting thing to me is like privilege feels um really passive when you have it like Mm -hmm. it's not it's not an active thing that you're thinking about so when when someone says that you have privilege it's not that you are um always actively or maybe uh, intentionally is a better word for it it's not that you're always intentionally oppressing someone else it's just that you are um in benefiting from these sort of like invisible structures um well they're invisible to you um because you've never had to worry about um you know whether um when you submitted your your resume to a job whether they would dismiss it because of what your name is right but but that's a big um you know worry for other groups of people um and so a big privilege thing that I didn't realize that I had. And so it can literally be just as simple as this is my um, third year in college. My roommate was a girl and I was like, okay, well, which bedroom do you want in the apartment? And she was like, well, obviously I want the back bedroom. That's like away from the street because I don't want my bedroom on the sleep what if somebody like comes in through the one and it had never occurred to me as a dude that like girls 
women think about like, what bedroom should I take? Like um, this bedroom could potentially be more dangerous if there's an intruder than this one. So I'd rather have the safer one. So it, 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 and that's not, that's not a privilege that was like me actively oppressing her, but that's just something that she had to think about that I have never had to think about before. Have you all seen this show, Shit's Creek? Have either one of you watched it? No. Of course. It's amazing. It's a great show. Oh, oh. <laughs> what you just said reminded me of the episode <laughs> where David and Alexis are just moving into the hotel. And uh, they're trying to decide who gets what bed in the room. And so she she's like, you get killed first this time. And he's like, no, you get killed first this time because they're fighting on who gets the bed closest to the door. And <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of what you just said. So, um, Rebecca, that's a that's one to put on your to watch list at some point in time. It's just a really fantastic show. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. So, but yeah, I think, you know, I think it is pretty simple in many ways that um, we don't take the time to realize what our unearned privileges are um, and even unexamined privileges are. So one of the things I really liked that she did in this chapter is she, she encouraged all of the readers to actually take that time, sit down and create a list of what your privileges are. Um, and then think about that in the context of the world and how you present yourself um, and what your worldview is. And so, well, I haven't actually done that yet. Um, that is something that I'm planning on sitting down and doing is actually making a physical list of my privileges and then talking with friends and saying, you know, what did I miss? What, what are some other privileges you see that I have that I haven't thought about? Um, just to start doing again some of that self-reflection um, because we have to do the work. No one's going to do that work for us. Um, so we have to take the time. We have to sit and think about what that what those um, qualities are and what those privileges are um, so that we can do better, be better, and um, show up every day in whatever context we show up, knowing that um, we need to have an equity lens on everything that we do and that we're thinking about other people beyond ourselves. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because um, I know at least for me, I'm a very visual person and even just going through it all in my head, I'm sure looking at it like in a list form, it you can visually see like there really is a lot of things that you may not necessarily see just walking around, just keeping it in your head or, you know, really, you don't even realize it's there. I didn't even when I was reading the book really account for, oh, that actually is something that I take for granted every day. That is a huge privilege. It really, really was kind of eye opening. Yeah, what would you, and you know, we, I'm sorry, go ahead, bud. What, what would y'all, uh, I guess, say to someone who says, look, m my life hasn't been easy either. What, what do you mean that I have privilege? Mm -hmm. So I think, um, 
what I would say is that, you know, it's on a spectrum, right? So there are certain things that I have immense privilege in, and there are other things that I have less privilege. So let's say that Bill Gates was to pop in here on our Zoom meeting right now. Well, clearly Bill Gates is going to have far more privileges in this life than any of us. Um, but if we were to have someone else pop in, you know, if it were someone who's living on the street right now, for example, or someone who just lost their job, um, or, you know, they're, they're just in a really bad situation in their home life, you know, maybe they're getting, um, you know, having domestic abuse in, in their environment that they're living in. In those particular situations, we have more privilege because, you know, we have stable home lives. We have people who support us and love us. Um, We have money coming in. So we're not having to worry about where our next meal is coming from or those types of things. So I think it's really on a spectrum. So for, for people who say my life's been really hard and I don't have any privilege, I don't know what you're talking about. A lot of times it's, again, unexamined. They haven't realized that they actually do have privileges based on things like race and class um, that maybe someone else doesn't have. So I think just sitting down and having a really open and honest conversation uh, with them about why they feel like they are privileged and maybe some ways in which they actually are um, and how that impacts others is a really, really important um, conversation to have. Yeah. And, Mary, and Oluo actually had. Sorry. And I did it. I'm sorry. I did it again. I'm sorry. I, before I asked the question, I cut you off when you were going to say something. So I was just good. Well, I was just going to mention really quickly that Oluo actually has some videos out um, that anyone can Google and find um, where she actually talks about this particular issue. And she talks about the fact that we really are kind of on. Um, you know, everyone's got different privileges at different times. It depends on the context. Um, so, you know, I think that's a really, really great way to frame that conversation. And um, she does a really nice job explaining it in those videos. So I would highly recommend everyone go check that out. Yeah, we all kind of have a little bit of a privilege. So maybe we should like... Um, instead of like individually acknowledging our all of our privileges as I, I am also a white person in case you couldn't tell um, and then um, orally um, and then uh, but but we all have the privilege of being associated with um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say the premier institution of the College of Central Florida um, for for the city of Ocala. You know, um, so the 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 college has um, earned a reputation of being sort of like the intellectual um, repository and the uh, sort of like uh, leading intellectual institution in in our city. Um, and there's a lot of privilege that that comes with that. And this podcast is being produced by the college, um, and that that privilege comes not only with um, with like uh, reputational privilege, but also with financial privilege. Mm-hmm. You know. 
so um, the the fact that we have that type of support makes us very, very, very lucky. And there are other people in our city that don't have the same kind of support um, with their job or. You know, Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's one hundred percent right on. I, um, you know, I just I just mentioned, oh, go Google X, Y, and Z, and and look up this this video. Well, there's a lot of people here in the city of Ocala that don't have access to good Wi-Fi or don't have a computer at home, and so because we're in a college environment. Um, we have access to all of that and then some um, to be able to produce podcasts like these and other, you know, visual and design elements that other people just don't have access to those resources. And, and we do. So we are privileged, very privileged in that way. Yeah, especially in this day and age where it's such a technological and electronic sort of driven shindig here. I mean, I, for the last six, seven, almost years have worked in the restaurant industry. Five of those was as a host. And, you know, when we would take, um, you know, wait list outside, like we would use phone numbers to call people and there would be the occasion where someone's like, oh, I don't have a phone. And, you know, it's almost hard to believe that that really is a privilege for some people to have a cellular device, to have a computer. And sometimes it's even like kind of takes you back like, oh, I can't really even imagine not having one. And that is a privilege. Oh, Rebecca, your youth is a privilege. Oh, my goodness. I can remember a time. I remember my first cell phone. You lucky duck, you. Uh, Am I? (laughs) Oh, you're right, actually. I don't know. Is it a privilege to never be able to, like, disconnect from the the world? I don't know. Um, Okay, so... I guess we can put a pen in that. Um, I, I just want to say, like, I'm I'm really interested in this conversation and bringing along as many people as we possibly can. And the thing that I would say to um, white people who have struggled and have difficult lives, have overcome adversity in their life, and have um, are maybe still, you know, have difficulty in their lives. Um, checking your white privilege does not mean that your life isn't hard. Your life is hard. A lot of people's lives are hard right now. And your life is hard in a way that other people's lives are not hard. But, and, and, and your struggles are never, never diminished because you have this, um, uh, I guess, un- unrecognized thing called quote-unquote white privilege so um yeah i don't know that's i guess that's how i want to end it (laughs) should we move to the next chapter which is uh oh my gosh what's the the next chapter what is intersectionality what is it that's a great question (laughs) what is intersectionality and why do i need it I mean, honestly, from what it seemed like this ties a lot into the fourth chapter, because it goes even beyond from at least what I understood, because as we talked a little before the podcast, like 
it was a little hard to wrap my mind around, but I think it's just because there's so many parts in intersectionality. Like it goes from, okay, here's white privilege, but did you, did you realize that there's also privilege if it's combined this way and that way? So I think that's why that is a concept. It's just like, oh, okay, I need to sit down for a minute and really think a little bit here. Yeah, that's um, spot on. And I, you know, I think um, with intersectionality, that's a concept that is fairly recent. Um, I want to say it was it was the 1990s when Kimberly Crenshaw um, adopted the phrase when she was looking at a couple of different identities and um, some of the research she was doing. And um, so essentially, intersectionality is, is, again, thinking outside of yourself for a moment, like, you know, um, as a white woman who's also cisgender and straight, um, you know, if I'm out there, you know, promoting a certain, you know, perhaps I'm marching for some sort of feminist issue, am I also considering my brothers and sisters who are people of color in that march, in that in that movement? Um, and if I'm not, I'm really not paying attention to intersectionality. Um, and so I, I think it does go back to chapter four a lot because we're, again, talking about unex- unexamined privileges that we have um, where we, we actually don't think about more than maybe the one dominant issue um, at hand. So she gives some great examples in the book about how, you know, for example, uh, with the LGBTQ movement, that that movement has largely been focused on gay white men. Um, and so, you know, the the struggle, I know, sorry, bud. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the struggles of, you know, transgender individuals or lesbians or bisexuals or what have you um, often is put on the back burner um, to advance you know, issues of concern for that particular dominant group within that, that LGBTQ um, area. And, and so as a result of that, um, some of those issues and needs that other people that identify with that group aren't being met. Um, and a lot of times they feel ostracized and even oppressed by that. So again, it goes back to that unexamined privilege. Yeah. So, it, I mean, just to, if we can put it like super sharply, I think um, Kimberly Crenshaw's realization was like, well, as a black woman, specifically those two identities, um, there are ways in which like I am not privileged uh, by being both black and a woman. Um, and so I do um, appreciate that she wants to make a special note of that in this chapter. Um, Maybe it's somewhere else in the book as well that she regrets that sometimes she feels like the idea of intersectionality has been like weaponized against the people that uh, that made it, uh, that, that coined the phrase, which is which is a, a phrase originally specifically for uh, to describe the experiences of Black women. Um, so, and and not just against um, you know white people in general, but also to describe their relationship with um, with Black men, um, and what the 
I don't know. I mean, so just to put it really sharply, it's just the way that our identities overlap in different ways. And I don't know. <laughs> that's that. I, th- I think that that's, uh, that's what I want to say. That's what I want to put it sharply. Yeah. Well, and one of the quotes she had in the book, which um, really kind of tied it up for me in a nice bow is um, intersectionality helps ensure that fewer people are left behind and that our, our efforts to do better for some do not make things far worse for others. Intersectionality helps us stay true to our values of justice and equality by helping to keep our privilege from getting in our way. Intersectionality makes our systems more effective and more fair. And I thought that was beautifully written and stated um, because that is the goal. That is what we should be striving for um, in all of our activism is to ensure that everyone is included and that, um, you know, we, we really are looking and thinking about equity and justice for everyone. Mm. It really just drives home what we talked about first off there with checking your privilege. It's, it's not just about an individual, it's about everyone, all the facets. And I, I think that's what people miss a lot of times when we talk about um, privilege or intersectionality. Like, it's not just air quotes, snowflake, oh, can't say cuss words, but snowflake stuff, you know? Sure, you can. Oh, can I? Is it this kind of program? This is a higher, well, it depends on the word probably, but... <laughs> wasn't anything too bad it's just i had to it got caught in my mouth i was like oh wait (laughs) but um no like it's not just about oh this is just um wishy-washy snowflake crap like this is about people and their real emotions and their real feelings and real damaging things that are happening to real people i think just it's very important for people to realize that and pay close attention to these things how they overlap and how it all works together. And we do that all the time. I mean, um, you know, like I, you, you may be like, you know, a, um, uh, uh, identify as a lot of different things to um, a lot of different people. And you may have multiple labels that you use in different contexts at different times. And, and, but you, you always recognize that those like sort of identity labels are always like a part of who you are. So I'm a, uh, I'm a professor. I'm a teacher. Um, I'm also a husband. I'm a, I'm a dog owner. Hi baby. (laughs) And uh, you know, so all of those things are kind of important, but if we're thinking about like sort of more official um, identity labels or like maybe a little bit more about demographic identity labels, then um, it makes sense that um, those levels of oppression and even those layers of privilege can can work together or um, compound each other. And that is the transition for Marianne to talk about code switching. <laughs> So yeah, we we um, were talking a little bit earlier just about um, the code switching that happens. Um, you know, everyone to a degree code switches, um, but for people of color, that is 
it's significantly more often. Um, and code switching, just a really simple definition of it is that you are changing up your behaviors, your language, what have you, in order to fit into whatever environment you find yourself in. And typically it's, it's ruled, again, by the dominant culture. So I use the example of I have found myself numerous times being the only woman as an administrator in the room making decisions with a, a group of men. And how I often had to code switch because if I had gone in as Marianne, the really nice person who uh, likes to hear everyone's ideas and is empathetic and so on and so forth, my voice would not have been heard. So there were times, um, numerous times, where I actually had to be much more assertive and even to the point of sometimes being aggressive um, to be able to be heard in those meetings. Um, I think of a particular instance at, at one of my old schools where I was, again, the only woman in a, in a room full of men. Was, I was probably, there were probably 30 people in the meeting and I was the one woman that was in there. And we were trying to problem solve this issue for a group of students. And um, so I had actually raised my hand to actually speak. No one else in the room was raising their hand. Um, just me. I raised my hand because I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And so I'm like, well, maybe I can be called on and be acknowledged at least that way. So finally, the chair of the, the meeting called on me. <laughs> and I, I probably said about six words before I was interrupted by another man in the room. And so instead of the chair stopping that and letting me finish what I had to say, the chair allowed that, that person to go ahead and have an entirely different conversation than the point I was actually even making at the time. Um, and then at the end of that conversation, instead of coming back to me, moved on with the rest of the meeting. And so I, once again, I had to raise my hand and, and I actually said to the chair, I didn't get to say my point. I didn't get to finish speaking because I was interrupted. I would like to be able to finish now. And no doubt, I probably had a tone. I, my face shows every emotion that I'm feeling. So I'm sure I was given stank face. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, so I, I know that they picked up on that. There was no question about that. But in that moment, in that time, I, I kind of had to code switch and act more like a man. Um, in order to be able to be heard in that room. So I had to be more assertive. I had to be more aggressive. And that's just a very simplistic example. Um, if we were to talk to some friends and family members, I'm sure they would be able to give us so many different examples of going from being the only Black person in the room um, or being the only queer person in the room. Um, and, you know, and again, trying to be heard and acknowledged. Um, and so throughout the book, um, Olua does a really nice job. You know, she points out and she never explicitly states that she has to code switch throughout her entire life. But it's really evident in the book when, when you see that she's, there's not that sense of belonging. She feels very much like the other um, when she's growing up in Seattle and even beyond Seattle. So it's really interesting when you start looking at the, the book from that perspective, too, about what she had to do. She never really felt like she belonged anywhere um, until she got involved in a couple of groups there in Seattle. And even then, later on, she kind of 
felt like she didn't belong with those groups either. Um, so as she has um, moved along in her understanding of who she is as an individual and what's important to her. Um, and so that was just a really fascinating look at the book in and of itself too, was just that code switching piece and, and her own journey um, as, she, as she figured all of that out. Um, yeah, one of my um, one of the bosses that I looked up to um, in my in my <laughs> more youthful days um, told me that she would go to meetings and she would take copious amounts of notes during the meeting. And one day she realized, she looked around and realized that none of the men ever took notes during the meeting and she had to train herself. Okay. You're not the secretary. Stop taking notes on the meeting. Like you don't have to write everything down and like have some record of it for your memory. You can participate in the same, you have to participate in the same way that everybody else in the room is. Um, yeah, so even like those tiny little things is like, you know, an example of code switching and maybe even an example of um, feeling like you don't have to take notes is like an example of privilege in that meeting space or feeling like you don't have to raise your hand to be heard or like you don't have to demand your space, your time back <laughs> like after you've been dismissed or talked over. Exactly. And those are also, and she has another chapter later on that talks about microaggressions. And so all of this is folded in together. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's just, again, it all goes back to privilege. That's why I think this is one of the most important chapters in the book, um, because it all goes back to understanding what your privilege is and trying again to do better and just be a better person. Can we um, stick a pen in intersectionality? And circ we'll circle back to intersectionality, I'm sure. Um, what did y'all think of the next chapter, which is, um, is police brutality really about race? This one's a little bit more, to me, it feels like a little bit more of like an emotional uh, chapter, a little bit more of like a, flush faced chapter for me. Like, I don't know. It's a very somber read. Definitely. Yeah. My, um, my take on it when I read that, even just the first line, when I was reading the chapter is police brutality really about race. My instantaneous thought was yes. Um, period, end of story. Um, yes, to me, it is about race. Um, it can be about other things too, but predominantly when you're seeing news story after news story after news story of unarmed Black men and women um, who are gunned down by police for seemingly no reason whatsoever, and because of qualified immunity or other, you know, regulations or you know, politics or what have you, whatever it may be, not being held accountable um, for taking the life of someone who was innocent. And, um, and even if they weren't innocent, taking the life of someone on a routine traffic stop, you know, uh, 
that's something, you know, I hope to never get pulled over by the police. I try to be very careful about my driving and so on and so forth, as everyone does. But just the simple fact that if you are driving while black, as she puts it in the book, that you have to worry, that you have to contact loved ones to tell them, I've just been pulled over by the police, that you have to take a picture or a video of the police while it's happening, just to show what happened um, in case something goes down, in, in case you lose your life in that moment, is I, I can't even imagine what must run through your head um, when, when in those moments. It, it's just the simple fact that you have to worry about that is so wrong on so many different levels. It, it, it's hard to talk about because of that. Uh, without getting really angry and getting upset. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I think it's probably worth reviewing. We we sort of like mentioned some of the statistics before we uh, started recording here. It's probably worth re- reviewing um, that page, um, just because I it's it's not only emotional, um, it's also statistical. I think that occasionally, you know, I'll talk to someone who has um, the best of intentions. Um, who will say, um, you know, it's a lot, a lot of terrible things have happened and I never wanted those, those things to happen, but to think that race plays a significant role in that is misguided. Um, and, and so just to like, I guess, um, you know, present her reaction to that, um, these are, these are the statistics that she mentions, um, my fear as a black driver is real. The fact is that black drivers are 23% more likely to be pulled over than white drivers, between 1.5 and five times more likely to be searched while shown to be less likely than whites to turn up contraband in these searches and more likely to be ticketed and arrested in those stops. This increase in stops, searches, and arrests also leads to a 3.5 to four times higher probability that Black people will be killed by cops. This increase is the same for Native Americans interacting with police, um, a shamefully underreported statistic. Even while we aren't arrested, even when we aren't arrested or killed, we are still more likely to be abused and dehumanized in our stops. A 2016 review of a 13-month period showed that Oakland police handcuffed 1,466 Black people in non-arrest traffic stops and only 72 white people in the same situation. And a 2016 study by the Center for Policing Equity found that Blacks were almost four times more likely to be subject um, to force from police, including force by hand, such as hitting and choking, pepper spray, taser, and gun, than white people. So those are like really um, sad statistics i'd say um i it it doesn't i I don't doubt at all that um there are good police officers and i don't doubt at all that there are um that in the right situation every police officer is a good police officer um but that doesn't mean that on 
a routine and more often than not, um, more often than should be rather situation that um, things that aren't unexpected and things like um, overestimating the strength of a person because it's a black man rather than a white man or, or guessing that, you know, like what uh, Tamar Rice was, what, 14 and, and assumed to be like 20 um, by the police officer. So, um, you know, all of these sort of internal biases are things that we have to face as a society so that even when we do, especially when we do some of our most dangerous work like policing, we can get it right. Yeah, she does a really good job um, in this chapter going into the history of how the police forces even began in the United States. And, um, you know, so when you start looking at it from a historical perspective, um, you know, there were these night guards, night watches um, that were put together in order to essentially um, find um, either freed slaves or slaves who had escaped and bring them back. Um, you know, so that they can be enslaved once again. And, um, you know, so when you transition from night guards like that um, or night watches like that um, to then the police force, you know, she puts it so succinctly in when she says, our police force was not created to serve Black Americans. It was created to police Black Americans and serve white Americans. Um and I think she's 100% correct about that. I, I would not argue that point at all. Um, we can make changes um, if we know that that implicit bias is there so that um, automatically an officer, because they have stopped a Black man, assume that, oh, they may be armed or they may have drugs on them or what have you. We can do implicit bias training with those police officers to teach them how to address those situations so it doesn't result in, a, you know, a death. Um, but uh, currently, right now, that's not what we're doing. Um, it's a hodgepodge of different types of trainings that police officers go through. And then all police officers are not alike. You have some police officers who have taken a three to six month course and now they're out there um, patrolling. You have some that have gone and gotten their bachelor's degree and even their master's degree or a PhD, um, you know, in criminal justice and so on and so forth. So not all police officers are alike in that regard either because they've all had a variety of different training, uh, some better than others. It's insane to me that a position like that isn't more standardized. I've always found that kind of baffling. Personally, it's like, what do you mean that they don't like, I mean, like, imagine if our doctors like just had a three to six month training and then it's like time for surgery. Like, that's insane. Important positions like that need to have like importance put into them. Maybe that's not the right word, importance, but like emphasis. No, I think that's the right word. <laughs> I think that's exactly yeah. the right word. We, have, we have to make it a priority, and it hasn't been made a priority, or at least it doesn't seem to the general population 
that it's been made a priority because these things continue to happen and they shouldn't. So I actually, um, you know, it's interesting. I um, just today, I, I got an email from um, the Blogging Institute at the UC, at UC Berkeley. And uh, I know we've been focused a lot on um, black individuals, but obviously this impacts um, Latino and Hispanic um, men and women, as well as Asian Americans too. And so it's really interesting. They just put out today um, these two, I think they call them zines, magazines, zines, zines, zines. I'm not sure how they pronounce it. Um, but essentially, zine, there we go. Thank you. Um, so they put out two zines today, um, one of which is just this really great history of um, how Asian Americans in particular have been um, the exoticization of them, the, um, you know, I think just the fetishizing of Asian Americans over, over um, time here in the United States, um, but also just how they've been poorly treated by um, the police as well. And so they've put out two publications, one of which is um, essentially call on me, not the police. And so I think that says a lot in this day and time that you know our Asian and the Asian American communities in the US are also saying, don't trust the police. Instead, turn to your fellow neighbors um, and your family members for help when you need it. Um, all because hate crimes on Asian Americans have risen drastically over the last couple of years due to COVID-19. Um, and it wasn't good beforehand, but it's worse now. Um, I think the statistic I saw was that there are at least 100 hate crimes um, committed against Asian Americans um, in the U.S. on a daily basis. 100 hate crimes. And it's, it's just the numbers when you start thinking about it are absolutely ridiculous. But um, even then, that community doesn't trust going to the police for assistance and help. And it all has to do with the fact that it's about power and control and is viewed as power and control over people of color. I think if we're uh, uh, talking about maybe other inter like other minority groups than um, than than racial minority groups, it's really important to note that um, people with um, who are undergoing like uh, mental health issues and mental health crises have um, really, really terrible interactions with police officers. And oftentimes it's just that police officers are not um, psychiatrists or, you know what I mean? They're not like, they're not in, well trained to, to deal with someone who is maybe experiencing some sort of mental break, um, or even, um, some sort of, um, uh, suicidal episode, not where they're trying to hurt someone else, but just trying to hurt themselves. And, um, often those situations turn, um, violent with police officers because, um, as a society, we haven't really been taught how to, how to deal with, um, you know, these mental health issues. Um, so, uh, there's a great book called, um, 
The End of Policing by Alex S. Vitale, who um, devotes um, an entire chapter to the way that um, mental health issues are dealt with and, and different cities around the country that are test piloting new programs of how to deal with, um, with mental health issues um, whether it means training police officers more or whether it means having a dedicated se section of the police that um, really specialize in mental health issues or even whether it means outsourcing those types of calls. I believe it's, um, I think it's Oakland. No, wait, no, it's somewhere in Oregon. I think it's Eugene, Oregon, ironically enough, that started doing um, a piloted a program that um, whenever it was suspected there was a mental health issue involved in the reason why a 911 call was being pl placed, um, instead of just sending police, they would also send mental health experts. Um, and that's been proven to reduce, you know, accidental deaths. So anyway, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that we can do. <laughs> well, and I think um, that's where the whole defund the police conversation comes into play because I know there was kind of an uprising among people in the United States about, oh, we shouldn't be defunding police. We actually need to be giving them more. And, you know, I, um, I kind of sit on the, the fence about that one. Um, personally, I think we ask our police officers to do too much. And so it gets to the point you were making, bud, is that, um, why would we be sending police officers out to handle a, a person who's having a mental health issue? They're not trained well to do that. So let's send a lic licensed social worker instead. Let's send a psychiatrist instead. Um, you know, yeah, they may need backup. We're not, we're not discounting that, but let them take the lead on, you know, working with the person who's having a mental health crisis in that moment. And so when I think about defunding the police and that whole um, concept, to me, it's not about taking money away, about, uh, away from the police force itself, but it's taking some of those monies and applying them to, you know, hiring social workers who can go with the police in order to respond to these types of calls, hiring rape crisis counselors um, and other people who can work with victims of domestic violence and rape. Uh, and so to me, it's about actually moving funds into a different area to really think about and, and respond to the issues that most often are seen in your community. And so to me, that, that's kind of um, where that conversation, it sort of stopped and ended. Um, but I feel like we actually need to continue with that conversation because I think we can realign some of the funding to actually meet community needs. And this I think that's very true here in Ocala as well. Can I like totally change the conversation now? And and maybe if this question totally flops, I'll just edit it out. Um, but I'm wondering because when you when you say that, Marianne, it sounds so much better, which is like defunding the police means making the jobs of police officers easier. Honestly, it should be good. It should be mean you no longer have to work 60 hours a week. Most officers work so much. Um, 
you no longer have to be um, both someone who um, makes arrests, investigates robberies, um, puts yourself in violent and dangerous situations. And on top of that, you have to be a mental health expert. And on top of that, you have to be able to save someone who possibly overdosed. And on top of that, you know, like it's so many things like... And then, and then also when we talk about privilege, you know, we talk about privilege and we say, it's not that your life isn't hard. It's not that I'm saying that, you know, so I'm wondering, like, is there a value when some people say, well, why don't we just call it something that doesn't mm, like trigger my defense mechanisms as much? Like, why wouldn't we call this policy instead of defund the police? Um, why wouldn't we call it make police jobs easier? <laughs> you know, make a police officer's life more easy. Or why wouldn't we say, um, you know, privileges, everyone's life is hard, but in different ways. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a great point with that. I, You know, when I first heard the, the term defund the police, I knew automatically that it was going to get a rise out of pretty much everyone because there were going to be people who were like, no, we're not going to defund the police. And then there are going to be other people who are going to be like, abolish the police. And, and we did. We heard both sides, both extremes of that conversation. Um, and so I'm with you. I'm like, this could have really used a good public relations person on it. <laughs> Someone who could come up with a, a really great name for what actually um, people were hoping to achieve, which is looking at what are the calls that we receive in the city of Ocala every single year? Okay, well, we're having a lot of issues with um, domestic violence. So let's move some of the funding over into that particular category so that we can hire one or two people who can go out on patrol with us who specifically are trained to work with victims of domestic violence. Um, and so, you know, it just, it's really about sitting down and thinking about where are your priorities in policing. Um, the other thing is, you know, uh, from a policing standpoint too, is getting out into the community and doing community policing, where instead of just being there because something bad has gone on um, and something has happened and you're having to respond to it, but you're out there in the community, you're getting to know people, they, they build this level of trust um, you know, we've, we've all seen the videos and, you know, the officers that stop to play basketball with the, the cute little 10 year old boys and stuff like that. Um, and it, it, it makes your heart warm. And, uh, and you know that there definitely reminds you that there are very good people who serve in the job of being a police officer. Um, and so um, those stories are important because police officers are not the enemy, but at the same time, police officers can also do better um, in thinking about how they do their work on a day-to-day basis. And if they're not going through the type of training where they have to examine their privileges and they have to think about how that informs their work on a day-to-day basis, then we're missing the mark. Um, we haven't even like tipped the surface of you know, what actually might need to be uncovered through that process so that they can be the best police officer for the community they can be. So yeah, we needed a good PR person on that particular on that particular task. Need more like a reorganized police versus defund. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Rebecca, we both talked about that we both come from um, very, very conservative backgrounds. And I'm wondering if we don't use the word privilege, does that make that first chapter easier to understand for our very conservative um, families? If we, you know what I mean? Like, um, and, and I'll edit this out, maybe. I don't know. Whatever. Because <laughs> this is like, I don't know if there's actually an answer to this question that is good or bad or whatever, but. don't think the wording of it is a problem so much as what people assume it implies. I think the issue is people just jump to conclusions. White people jump to conclusions about that topic too quickly when they have that adverse like because you know it's a hard thing to talk about you don't want to feel like you're doing someone harm doing something wrong and it's not pleasant to have to look and see that oh you didn't realize that you really deeply hurt somebody sometimes to a point where you know you're not going to recover that relationship very easily and I think a lot of times it's so hard for people to accept that terminology because they're like, well, I'm not a bad person, like I said. But I think if people looked at it for, through the lens of it's not that you're a bad person, it's just you have these certain traits that make it easier for you. And it's not as easy for this person and sometimes even detrimental to this person that you don't see just blatantly outlined for you that is what we're trying to look at so i don't think it's really the verbiage my opinion it's just i think it feels like an attack to those kinds of people when it's not okay i think we should call it right there that was very well said rebecca thank you so much uh, to Rebecca, um, a current uh, digital media student, very proud to say, and um, to uh, Dr. Marianne Beckley, um, who is our current um, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at the college. Thanks, y'all. College of Central Florida offers equal access and opportunity in employment admissions and educational activities. The college will not discriminate on the basis of race, color, ethnicity, religion, gender, pregnancy, age, marital status, national origin, genetic information, sexual orientation, gender identity, veteran status, or disability status in its employment practices or in the admission and treatment of students. Recognizing that sexual harassment constitutes discrimination on the basis of gender and violates this policy statement, the college will not tolerate such conduct. CF Speaks would like to thank the CF Foundation for their generous support. 
Please subscribe to CF Speaks on your preferred podcast platform to hear all past and future episodes. Thank you for listening.